0: Love, talk, radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic and Apologetic Show. Me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing salvation. There's a whole lot of material on this, and it's probably going to take two shows. But we'll get started on it today. So, we're going to start with the Jewish roots of salvation. God's first covenant was with Adam and Eve, and they were his creation in the Garden of Eden, but when they didn't follow God's plan, he expelled them from the Garden of Eden. So They had a covenant relationship, but God requires them to actually follow what he taught them and told them to do. And when they ate the forbidden fruit, he expelled them. So God didn't break the covenant with them. They broke the covenant with God. Later on, God tells Noah to build an ark to save himself and his family Because he was going to destroy the earth. And after that, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never destroy the earth again. God's next covenant was with Abraham. And Abraham's story takes place from chapters in Genesis, from chapters 12 to 23. And it requires Abraham to do many things to maintain the covenant with God, including circumcision. The covenant with Abraham has three parts, and it begins with three promises to make Abraham a great nation, to give him a great name, and to make him the source of blessing for all the world. And Abraham is critical in our understanding of salvation because Jesus, James, and Paul use Abraham is the example of our father in the faith. Later, God upgrades these initial three promises, turning them into divine covenants, as shown in Genesis chapter 15. God swears not only to not only make Abraham a great nation, he makes a covenant with him in which he promises to deliver Abraham's descendants from oppression in an alien land and give them a specific territory. God changes Abraham's name Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. And if you have ever read the book of Genesis, you understand that, you know, for a long, 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 long time, like a hundred years, Abram had no children, and yet his name was Exalted Father. Yet God had promised Abram that he would make him a father. And later on, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which is even a greater honor because it means father of nations. And that happens in Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 17, God says, not only will his name be great, but God, by a covenant oath, swears to make Abraham the father of a host of nations, a royal dynasty. Kings shall stem from you. And the kings of the later Jewish kingdom are all descendants of Abraham. And Genesis chapter 22 tells Abraham to offer his son in sacrifice on Mount Sinai. Abraham has to obey God to retain his righteousness. After God tells Abraham not to kill his son, God elevates his third promise by swearing to make Abraham's descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. In Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. And we are all descendants of Abraham through that covenant that God made with Abraham that was passed on to the Israelites later on. So Abraham was justified on at least three different occasions. He was justified in Genesis chapter 12 when he left Haran in the land of Ur and went to the promised land. He was justified in Genesis 15 when he believed the promise concerning his descendants. And he was justified in Genesis chapter 2 when he offered his first promised descendant on the altar. After Abraham, God had a covenant with Moses, and he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and when the Israelites can't even follow the simple Ten Commandments, he gives them the Law of Leviticus, which is about 613 different laws. The Israelites remained in covenant with God as long as they continued to follow God's teachings. Later on, the descendants of Moses, uh, through King Saul, we get to the covenant of God with David. And David passed the covenant on to his son Solomon. But when Solomon's son failed to keep the covenant with God, the kingdom of Israel broke into two parts. The ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The ten northern tribes were later conquered when they failed to keep God's covenant. And even the two southern tribes, as they became more corrupt by not following God's covenant, were conquered by the Persians and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. All of this is important background to understand because the first Christians were descendants of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they were commonly called Jews. And they brought their Jewish understanding that you had to keep God's covenant into Christianity. So we have to understand that the first Christians knew that just because you were baptized or came to believe in Jesus didn't mean that you were all done as a Christian. They knew that you there was more required after you came to believe in Jesus. So how were the first Christians saved? Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians both agree that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Some Protestants will agree that Catholic with Catholics that works have something to do with our salvation afterward. Some Protestants follow Martin Luther using Romans 3:28. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. They contend that salvation is by faith alone. It's important to understand the works of the law that Paul is referring to. He is referring to the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws. Students agree with our Protestant brothers and sisters that we are not saved by the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws. We're saved by faith in Jesus and by God's grace. Other Protestants follow John Calvin using Rome, Romans 8:29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These Protestants contend that God calls his predestined, justifies them, and glorifies them. However, 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that God wants all men to be saved. And Paul tells Timothy, you know, to pray even for the Roman rulers. So, we know that God wants all men to be saved, and God pours out his grace on everyone, but not everyone responds. So God does his part in that he predestines everybody to go to heaven, but not everybody responds to uh, his call to follow him. Not everybody responds to God's grace. Other Protestants from the holiness movement start with Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 tells us, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So, Protestants that only use verses 8 and 9 contend that salvation is by God's grace alone. However, verse 10 tells us that God has good works for us to do. And we do them as an extension of Jesus Christ in the world. So they are God's works, but they're done through us because we are members of the body of Christ through baptism. So we have no reason to boast of our work because they're actually God's works done through us. But, as verse 10 reminds us, we have works to do. It's not a one-and-done kind of salvation. And the first Christians understood this because they were Jews and they knew that you had to keep God's covenant be to still be in that covenant in the 1950s, the modern evangelical movement started and they promote Christian becoming a Christian by confessing Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And they use Romans 10, chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For a man believes with his heart, and so is justified, and confesses with his lips, and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In the Catholic Church, we use the whole Bible and not just a few verses here and there from Romans or Ephesians. Good morning, John. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, good morning. I'm just listening. I got to to a point where I can tune in and... Uh... Please carry on. I'm enjoying it very much. Okay. Protestants look at the whole Bible from their favorite chapters in Romans and Ephesians or Galatians. They take their favorite verses, and then they use those as the lenses to interpret the rest of the Bible. But we have to understand that Paul is teaching that Christians are saved by Jesus and not the Jewish works of the law. It's important to understand what Paul is referring to when he says the works of the law. It's the Jewish ceremonial and cultural laws. It's not the moral law. Protestant theology looks back on the Gospels and the Old Testament through the lenses of their founders' interpretation of Paul's writings. And that interpretation was developed back in the 1500s, or even more recently. Their theology starts with their interpretation of Paul, and then looks back. Whereas Catholic theology starts with the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, we add in Jesus' new covenant, and then we look forward in Christianity. We agree with our Protestant brothers and sisters that, God's grace can inspire us to make a profession of faith in Jesus, and that we are saved at that time. We agree with some Protestants that more is required after initial salvation. We agree with some Protestants that we need to grow in holiness. We agree with some Protestants that after being saved, you can lose your salvation through the sins that Paul tells us can keep us out of heaven in First Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5. Catholics look at the whole Bible from the Old Testament through what Jesus commanded his apostles to do in Matthew chapter 28 and what Paul taught based on the, his Jewish understanding and inspiration from Jesus. This is why Catholic theology is so simple but very deep as well. the Catholic Church, we use the whole Bible. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus unto the works God calls us to do as members of the body of Christ. The works we do are Jesus' works done through us because baptism incorporates us into Christ. In Acts chapter 2 22, Jesus asks Paul, why are you persecuting me? And this is evidence that we are members of the body of Christ because Jesus had already ascended into heaven and yet Paul, Jesus accuses Paul of persecuting him. But Paul is persecuting the church and the church is the body of Christ. So when we understand that baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ, we understand our works are Jesus' works done in the world. And therefore we have no reason to boast over them. We are just as humble servants. But because Jesus calls us to do things, we are required to do them. In Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18, Jesus says, well, it says, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And ten days later, we find this in Acts chapter 22, where the first converts are added to the church, starting at verse 37. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all that are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. For he has testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we find ten days after Jesus ascended into heaven, that 3,000 are added to the church through baptism, which forgives sins and gives the Holy Spirit and is for children. Now, some Protestants will tell you that, you know, what we're doing in the Catholic Church is wrong. But 10 days after uh, Jesus ascended into heaven, 3,000 are added to the church through baptism. And some Protestants will tell you that baptism doesn't really do anything It's just a thing that we have to do because Jesus said we have to get baptized in Matthew chapter 28. But it's very clear in the Bible that 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, that the church was teaching that baptism forgives sins and gives you the Holy Spirit and is for children. It amazes me that, you know, Peter gets it right 10 days after Jesus ascends into heaven, Protestants that are new to Christianity, like this idea didn't even start until the 1600s, insist that we're doing it wrong when their interpretation is so new. In Acts chapter 8, we find it says, But when they believed Philip's preaching, but when they believed Philip, preaching good tidings concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So in Acts chapter 8, people are added to the church through baptism. Once they heard about Jesus, they said, yes, we want that. And the way they became part of the Christian covenant was through baptism. Now, since this was something new to them, You know, they had to be preached to first. But we know that back in Acts chapter 2, that baptism is not just for the adults that heard Peter preaching, but for the children also. And baptism had the great advantage over circumcision and that both men and women could receive it. And we also find here in Acts chapter 8, And as they went on the way, they came to a a place with water. And the eunuch said, Behold, here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Philip teaches and baptizes the eunuch. So here we understand that some Protestants say that, you know, the baptism that we receive is the Holy Spirit, um, and we get that warm feeling in our heart from the spirit baptism. And they insist that the water baptism that uh, Jesus refers to in John chapter 3, of being born of the water and spirit, that water baptism is when you're born through the amniotic fluid, and then Holy Spirit baptism is when you have that moving in your heart. But here in Acts chapter 8, it clearly teaches that both Philip and Eunuch went into the water, and Philip baptizes them. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias departed. Entered into the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, who appeared to you on the way which thou came here, has sent me, that you may receive the gift of your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And straightway there fell from his eyes as it were scales, and he received his sight, and he arose and was baptized we find this story told again in Acts chapter 22, and we'll get to that later. In Acts chapter 10, we have Peter and Cornelius. And it says, Can any man forbid the water that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then prayed that they tarry, prayed, and they prayed him to tarry certain days. So after Jesus baptized Cornelius and his family, they wanted him to stay and teach them more. Because he had taught them enough to convince them to become a Christian, get the whole story. Because in, say, an hour or two, you can't get the whole story. And this is important uh, for us to remember that Cornelius' family was a Gentile family. They were not Jews. And when Peter saw that the Holy Spirit came upon this Gentile family, he understood that God was telling him that you don't just have to be a Jew to become a Christian. Gentiles can be Christians too. And that's why he commanded water be brought, and he baptized them. Now, it's important also to note that in Acts chapter 2 and here in Acts chapter 10, it says that Peter baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ. Some Protestants, called the Jesus-only Protestants, (laughs) insist that Uh, baptism is only done in the name of Jesus because of what is written here in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. But Peter had learned from Jesus to baptize in the Trinity. And when Peter writes about, well, Luke writes about Peter baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ, he's referring to the baptismal formula that Jesus Christ taught Um, Peter, yes. So that is the correct formula for baptism. When Protestants look at just certain verses of the Bible, they can get off track. But when you use the whole Bible, you can stay on the track if you also follow the teaching of the church that Jesus left his authority with. See, in Acts chapter 16, a certain woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple in the city of Thyatira, one that worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord had opened to give heed unto the things which were spoken by Paul. And when she was baptized and her whole household, she besought us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay there. And she constrained us. So again, here we have a woman who gets, hears about Jesus and her whole household is baptized. And she asks Paul and I think Timothy was with him at that time. And maybe Mark also, Uh, she asks them to stay with her and teach them more about Jesus. So we have initial salvation by learning about Jesus, baptism, and then they learn more about Jesus. And we also have a story about um, when Paul was in jail, and (coughs) the jailer has Paul and Silas in jail brought out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord unto him, and all that were in that his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and his household, immediately. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly with all his house, having believed in God. So the jailer that had Paul and Silas in jail had heard about heard them preaching about Jesus, and he asks them, What must we do? He asks you know Paul and Silas, What must he do to be saved? And they tell him, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. Now, some Protestants will take that verse and say, see, all you have to do is believe. But if you just read a little bit more, uh, we find that the jailer takes Paul and Silas out, washes their wounds, and the jailer and his whole household, which would include children, are baptized that night. They didn't wait until the next day or the next week or until it was convenient. It was that night. So for people coming new to the faith, yes, they hear about it, and then they want to be baptized to enter the church. But the entrance into the church is through baptism, not just by believing, after hearing. We have to understand that the book of Acts tells us about the early church and how things developed, but it isn't necessarily just the formula for how we're supposed to run the church. In Acts chapter 18, we find where it says, but when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia and Cyprus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing and believed, they were baptized. So Again, this is another example of Jews, Gentiles, hearing about Jesus, and when they come to believe in Jesus, they get baptized. And it's like the whole household also, not just the adults that can hear. And Crispus here is an important figure because he's the ruler of the synagogue. And if you don't know your first century Jewish culture, that may not mean that much to you. But outside of Jerusalem, in the various cities around the Mediterranean, they had synagogue communities. And perhaps where you live today, there might be a synagogue somewhere in your community where the Jews go to worship. But the ruler of the synagogue is like the head of the synagogue. He would be like the pastor of the parish in our modern speaking. So this Christmas guy is very important in this town because he's like the religious leader for the whole town. So when Crispus became convinced that Jesus is Lord, many of the other Corinthians also came to believe and were baptized. In Acts chapter 19, we find it says, And it came to pass that Paul found certain disciples who only had the baptism of John with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him and should come after him, that is, on Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to remember back in John chapter 3 that the John the Baptist is baptizing people for repentance in the River Jordan. And Jesus comes to be baptized also. But before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, his apostles, to go out and teach everything he taught them and to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So these folks here that Paul and other certain disciples they find that these Christians that only had received the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, they baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, following Jesus' formula for baptism, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now in Acts chapter 22, we have a repeat of the story of Ananias and Paul from Acts chapter 9, I believe it was. 9. And Ananias speaks to Paul and he says, and now why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So, here in Acts chapter 22, we have confirmation or Acts chapter 2 that baptism washes away sins. And in Titus, chapter 3, it talks about how we're regenerated through the washing, or how we're saved by the washing of regeneration, and that salvation and washing is baptism, and that's confirmed by Acts chapter 22. So, from all this, we find that the first Christians responded to the preaching of the apostles and were added to the church through baptism as Jesus commanded right before he ascended into heaven. Children of the household, too young to respond, were also added to the church through baptism. And this is based on the idea that Jewish males who were circumcised at eight days old and were added to the people of God. So the Jews had no problem with bringing their children into covenant with God because they had been doing it for thousands of years. It's only later Protestants Starting in the 1600s, with a backward look on the Bible, come up with this idea that you have to believe first and then you can be baptized. When you don't know your Jewish history to back up your Christian history, it's easy to get off track with the Bible. Now, here's some historical references. From the early church that confirms what we do now written around 70 ad we have a, a document called the didache which is the teaching of the twelve apostles and it required the first christians to be taught and baptized in 74 ad epistle of barnabas he writes about how christians are being baptized in 80 ad In the writing called Shepherd of Hermas, he writes about Christians being baptized. So here's three writings from the first century written at the same time, around the same time as the writings of the New Testament that confirm that you become a Christian through baptism. In 155 AD, Justin Martyr writes about how Christians who are enlightened and baptized can receive the Eucharist. In 180 AD, Irenaeus, who learned the faith from Polycarp, who learned the faith from the Apostle John, wrote that we baptize infants and that we are regenerated, born again, through baptism. In 210 AD, Origen of Alexandria wrote that the baptism of infants is a tradition handed down to us by the apostles. In 215 AD, Hippolytus of Rome wrote that baptizing infants is a standard practice of the church. Uh, Hippolytus writes that you know adults can you know profess for themselves before being baptized children old enough to understand can profess for themselves before being baptized, but he also writes that infants who are not old enough to profess for themselves can be baptized based on the faith of their parents, who promised to raise them in the faith. In 251 AD, at the Synod of Carthage, they discussed baptizing infants and decided there was no need to wait until the eighth day following the Jewish practice of circumcision. It was the heretical groups that wrote against infant baptism as the early church was developing. Christians have disputed for many years how we are saved. Protestant Christians claim that we are saved by grace and faith, but not works. Catholic Christians recognize that the Bible teaches that we are saved by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, working through love of God and our fellow man. Generally, Protestants think that works are not required for salvation, but are a good idea. And it looks like we have another caller coming in. Hi, you're on the show. Do you have a question? Oh, I can't hear you, so uh, we'll move on. Christians and Protestant Christians both agree that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Protestants agree with Catholics that good works need to be done after initial salvation. Protestant Christians like to refer to the many passages in the Bible that say that you are saved by faith or believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Catholic Christians also agree that a confession of faith or believing does provide initial salvation. Protestant Christians like to refer to Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 2 where it says we are justified by faith not works. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are saved by grace and faith not works. The key to understanding these passages is knowing the peoples that Paul is preaching to. The first Christians were Jews that also thought that they needed to continue to follow the old law. Gentiles were added to the group of early Christians, the Jewish Christians tried to make them keep the Jewish law as well. The Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, a binding decree was given to all Christians, telling them they no longer needed to keep the Jewish law, works of the law. These are the works that Paul tells us don't save us. This is confirmed by the Dead Sea Scrolls reference to the works of the law that was written before the time of Christ, and by Saint Augustine, who wrote about this. Faith this, year, wrote, this is what Augustine wrote. If I have all faith so as to move mountains, but oh, this is a quote from Corinthians, I'm sorry. If I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So faith, hope, and love remain. These three. But the greatest of these is love, and that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So the question is, how does one remain in the love of Jesus? And John writes, he said, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And that's from John chapter 15, verse 11. what does the Bible say about someone who claims to know Jesus but doesn't keep the commandments? Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And we find that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-4. On what basis does Jesus separate the sheep from the goats? They go to heaven or hell based on the deeds of mercy done or left undone you find that in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And what happens if we deny Jesus? If we persevere, we shall reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. And we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. What happens if we say we have fellowship with him while we continue to walk in darkness? we are a liar and we do not act in truth we find that in 1 John chapter 1 verse 6 and what happens to Christians who live according to the flesh if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live and we find that in Romans chapter 8 verse 13 so if you continue to live Following your fleshly desires, you will die and not be able to go to heaven. But if you put away your evil deeds done in the body, you will live and be able to go to heaven. And how do we know what is evil and what is good? Well, the Ten Commandments tell us. So this is confirmation that we have to keep the Ten Commandments. Some Protestants are taught that once you're saved, you're always saved. doesn't matter if you keep the Ten Commandments, because keeping the Ten Commandments is a work. But here in Romans chapter 8, we are taught that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, by following the Ten Commandments, you will live. Will Christians who practice the works of the flesh without repentance inherit the kingdom of God? No, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you look in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, you'll find all about that. Does freedom in the Lord mean freedom from being judged according to the moral law? No, do not use freedom as an opportunity Or the flesh, rather serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You find that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. I suggest everybody read Galatians chapter 5 if you're wondering whether you can lose your salvation or what you're required to do to keep your salvation. Does Jesus threaten to spew the Laodiceans out of his mouth because of their lukewarm faith? No, it's because of their lukewarm faith, their lukewarm works, that he will spew them out. And we find that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. If someone sees a brother in need and refuses him compassion, does the love of God remain in him? Well, in the Bible, it says, "Children, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed and in truth and then we find that in First John chapter three, verses seventeen and eighteen. so it doesn't it's not good enough just to believe in Jesus or to have faith in Jesus. It is deed and truth." that actually saves us beyond our initial point of salvation. So now we're going to be talking we're going to talk about how we are born again through baptism. Catholic Christians and most Protestant Christians teach that we are born again through baptism. However, there are some Protestant denominations that teach that we are born again by accepting Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. Some Protestants interpret Jesus' command for us to be born of water and spirit to mean that we are born of the amniotic fluid water, and, again, when the Holy Spirit inspires us, we are born of the Spirit. This is a new interpretation developed in the late 1800s at the earliest. This is what the Bible teaches us about being born again through baptism. This is my covenant, which you shall observe between me and you, and thy seed after thee. All the male kind of you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, that it may be a sign of the covenant between me and you. An infant of eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house as well as shall be circumcised and whosoever is not of your stock. We find this in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. So the way Abraham and his descendants became in covenant with God, and the symbol of that covenant was circumcision. And circumcision can only be given to men. So the women of Abraham's tribe and the Israelites and the Jews after them are in covenant with God through their father at first and their husband after that. And that's why it was important for women to be married so that they can continue to be in covenant with God. And again, from the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 36, we find, and I will pour out, let me start again, upon you clean water, and you shall be cleansed from all your filthiness, and I will cleanse you from all of of your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take away the stone, Heart out of your flesh and will give you a new heart of flesh. So here Ezekiel is teaching us that we will be made clean through water. In Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter says to the Jews who asked what they must do to be saved, Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children, and for and to all that are far off, whomsoever the Lord our God shall call. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches the good tidings concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, and all who heard were baptized, both men and women. And Philip also teaches and baptizes the eunuch, as I mentioned earlier. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias tells Paul, who was known as Saul at that time, that Jesus sent him to Paul to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and to baptize him. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to Cornelius, who received the Holy Spirit, and then baptizes Cornelius and his whole household, which would include children. In Acts chapter 16, Paul baptizes Lydia and her household, and in both of these households, both Cornelius's and Lydia's, would likely contain children, since the Jews often lived in two- or three-generation households. In Acts chapter 18, Silas and Timothy baptized Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and many of the Corinthians heard about Jesus and believed. In Acts chapter 19, Paul found certain disciples who had only received the baptism of repentance from John. When they heard about Jesus, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And again, this is the baptismal formula of Jesus in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just the baptism of repentance that they received from John the Baptist. And again, we have confirmation here in Acts chapter 22. Ananias speaks to Paul and says to him, and now why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on his name. So this hearkens us back to Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel washes away the sins of the Israelites coming, well, the Jews coming back to the city after they had been freed. They're coming back to Jerusalem, and he washes away their sins and takes out out their stony heart and gives them a new heart. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, we find, starting at verse 20, which has been sometime incredulous when they waited for the patience of God in the days of Noah, when the ark was a building, when Noah's building the ark, wherein a few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, wherein to baptism like the, of the like form now saves you, not the putting away of filth of the flesh, but the examination of the good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So from 1 Peter chapter 3, that we are we learn that we are saved through the water And it's not for washing away filth on the outside, so immersion is not required, but it does give us a good conscience toward God because it washes away our sins. Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. In each account, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and Jesus is identified as the Son of God. This sets the context for for explanation for Jesus' teaching in John's Gospel, which was written later, where Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again. In John's Gospel, Chapter 3, it says, Jesus answered him and said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again if he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you. Unless a man be born of water and the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the way we understand this is by referring back to Acts chapter 2, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, we get the Holy Spirit through baptism. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life, born again through baptism. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, Adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So notice the sequence here. You are washed baptized, you are sanctified, made holy, and then you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So baptism comes first here in the teaching of Paul. In Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, Paul links circumcision as the seal of the Old Testament with baptism as the seal of the New Testament. Jewish male babies did not have to accept the faith of their fathers to enter into covenant with God at eight days old. They were brought into covenant based on the faith of their parents. And that's why we baptize our babies. Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not... Because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This water of rebirth is baptism. And that also gives us the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is true. Note here that it says the hope of eternal life. So Paul is not saying just because you've been baptized, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. We hope to have eternal life as long as we remain in covenant with God. So if you put all of these verses together, you'll get the original intent that we are born again through baptism. This is why in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' final command before his ascension was for his apostles to go out and teach everything he taught them and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He does not command his apostles to go out and have new believers accept him as their personal Lord and Savior. In 150 AD, Justin Martyr wrote that in his first apology that we are regenerated born again through baptism. In 180 AD, Irenaeus also writes that we are regenerated through baptism. Both of these early Christian writers learned about Christianity from Polycarp, who learned about Christianity from the Apostle John. This creates a chain of evidence from the Apostle John of Jesus saying that we need to be born again, and the spirit born again of water and spirit, to the original Catholic understanding of being born again through baptism. So the guys that learn from the Apostle John give us the correct interpretation of the Apostle John's writing that we need to be born of water and spirit. People have free will. They can choose to follow new interpretation of John chapter 3 that was developed by some guy in the 1800s. Or people can follow the original interpretation of John chapter 3, taught by the men who learned from the Apostle John. It's up to us to choose wisely. So that'll be it for today's show. Next week, we'll pick up with Salvation as a Process. If you would like a copy of today's show notes and next week's show notes, you can send me an email at Catholic Ken. That's Catholic with a K at the four persons and that the four is the number four, not F O U R dot com. So that's Catholic Ken at the dot com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for tuning in.